So like I said, we have moved throughout the entirety of Revelation. And Revelation is built on seven sets of seven with a jubilee picture in the new heavens and new earth and then a culminating ratification in this epilogue, in this epilogue that we get tonight. And so those seven sets of seven, right, are the letters to the seven churches, then six visionary cycles of seven cycles in each of them, and then that jubilee picture, 50, right, 7 times 7 is 49, and then the last picture, 50, is new heavens and new earth. And so the book is structured symbolically on the basis of the Jubilee cycle. But this will not be an enter another 50 years of, of craziness. This will be the final and eternal Jubilee, which is what we have been looking at in Revelation. And tonight, it has now come to a close. There is no more visionary cycles, no, no more really instruction as far as uh, what will be throughout this millennial age. That is the reign of Christ from first coming to second coming. Now it is merely in light of these truths, this is how you shall live. In light of the things, in light of what you have learned for my plan and purpose for you, this is how you shall live, my people. Right? That really is the way in which Revelation closes. It closes with exhortations. An exhortation is merely an urgent call to act. So when we preach, when we herald on Sunday mornings, that is what biblical preaching is. It is an exhortation to urgently act in light of God's Word. That, that is really what preaching is, what it should be uh, anyway. And so we're going to look at this closing ratification. And when you ratify a document, you're, you're signing it. You're putting it into action putting it into law, and that is what Christ does with his own signature tonight. He ratifies his word and establishes it as the principal point of obedience for his people. And so let's look tonight, Revelation 22, 6-19. We read, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evil doer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. For the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hear say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we are with this epilogue. And all of this, when it begins there in verse 6, and he said to me, that's Jesus. Jesus is the one speaking this, revealing this. Now this conclusion provides us a list of exhortations which affirm the revelation's validity. These, this is trustworthy and true. It declares blessings for obedience to God's Word, to Christ's Word, and it warns of curses for disobedience. It also invites all the readers, everyone who hears, to come and receive Jesus, to come and receive the water of life, which is free to those who come to Him to partake of it. The epilogue there at the end and the prologue at the beginning are very closely connected. It, it, this is a very Johannine way of writing. It's very circular. You see this in his gospel as well. You get in the gospel of John, those first 18 verses are a prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became God, and the Word, you know. So you get that, and it brings you the whole circle. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's tabernacle language. And then literally from the rest of John 1, 19 to the end of the book, it's explaining how he tabernacled among us, right? So John, as opposed to Paul, is very circular in his writing. So now he's bringing it full circle back to the prologue where he started, whereas Paul is, here's the argument, here's the application, right? That's, Paul is very linear in his writings, and John is a little bit more Hebraic in that circular way of writing. But in this epilogue, there are five exhortations to act and there is one warning to heed. So five exhortations and, and one warning. And the first exhortation we see is found in verses 6 and 7. And the exhortation is this. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this book. And there are four arguments given in verses 6 and 7 as to why we should keep the words. Why we should be obedient to the words that have been given, to the call of faithfulness found within the book. The first is pretty clear. These words are trustworthy and true. This is the Lord himself declaring his word as trustworthy and true. Now you've got to imagine, right? We've all been there. We have gone through Revelation now for several weeks, for over a year. There are some difficult things in this book. There are things that are hard to grasp, hard to understand. But what the Lord does not want us to do is to say, simply because it is difficult to fully grasp, to just cast it off as if it, maybe it's not necessarily something we should trust. Maybe it's not something that is necessarily true. No, everything in this word is trustworthy and true. Just as, as 
The Lord closed the vision to Daniel in Daniel 2.45. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. This is exactly what the Lord is now doing in this revelation. He is declaring every word in this book is trustworthy and true. Therefore, keep it. And if you keep it, you will be blessed by it. Secondly, the author of this revelation is the same author of all true revelation. Notice what he says here in verse 6. The God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. That God of the spirits, plural, of the prophets is denoting the way in which God is the author of all revelation in Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God. He is the one who has anointed and inspired the spirits, plural, of the prophets to write and to put forth exactly what His will is for His people. You see this throughout Scripture, all the way from Moses into the New Testament. So with Moses, this is how the Lord called him to set apart Joshua to be the prophetic leader of Israel after him. Numbers chapter 27, verse 15 through 21. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, and they shall inquire for him by the judgment of Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. So here in the Mosaic period, right now we have Joshua, who is being set apart by the Spirit of God, who is going to grant him authority, and through his Spirit speak through Joshua in a way that his words become authoritative for the people of Israel. So when Joshua speaks, it is God speaking through him. That's why we get the book of Joshua. And really the end of Deuteronomy as well. Probably the last half of Deuteronomy, honestly. But then also we see this from Peter. 2 Peter 1.21 For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible is inerrant. It is inspired. It is God-breathed. And just like the rest of Scripture is, so is Revelation. It is not some secondary pseudepigraphical work. It is the true inspired Word of God. And thus we should heed every word that we've looked at in our time together. Not only are they trustworthy and true, not only are they from the same author of all true revelation, but they are guaranteed by Christ Himself. He is the one saying... They are trustworthy and true. This isn't John saying that. This isn't even an angel saying that. 
The Lord Himself is declaring these words are trustworthy and true. Just as He said in Revelation 21.5, And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So this is the second time now that statement, trustworthy and true, has been provided. So why should you obey the Word? Because it's trustworthy and true. Because it is inspired by God. But then lastly, because it is imminent. These words are imminent. And by imminent, that simply means they will take place. They will soon take place. And we see that throughout this, right? Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, the prologue. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. In other words, for every generation of the church, the words of Revelation have not been some far-off future reality that's only going to be pertinent to a bunch of Jews in a seven-year tribulation. That's foolish. It's foolish. In every age of the church, in every generation, in every century, these words are to be kept and obeyed. Why? Because there are realities within them that are actively occurring right now. Why? Because we are in the interadvental period. We are in the period where the Lord is building His church amidst opposition. And these things are imminent. We must obey them and keep them because Christ can return at any time. My friends, we have been at the end of the age since Christ ascended to glory. We have been in the last days since He ascended to the throne of heaven. We're just closer to the end of the end of days than they were then. He is imminently coming though. And so it behooves His people to be obedient to His Word. Why? Because as He said in the Gospels, when the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on the earth? Will he find a people who are obedient and pursuing him and going after him in absolute, complete faithfulness in spite of what they see? One of the key themes of Revelation and one of the key realities of this first exhortation is this. In a world where things are not what they seem, the only sure guide for God's people is his faithful word. In a world where things are not as they seem, the only sure guide that God's people have is His Word. So, so don't look to what you perceive is happening in the world. Look to what God's Word says is happening. And what God's Word says is happening is Christ is being victorious. He is gathering His people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Evil will continue to grow side by side with the church, the wheat and the tares. But do not let the darkness of the world fool you to think Christ is losing. Or that the gospel is not winning and growing out and, and doing amazing things to gather people. Do not think that by the sheer darkness of it, that Christ is not going to return and absolutely judge with utter perfection against all wickedness and iniquity. 
Do not think for one second. He is not sovereign over all of the foolishness and chaos you see on your news headlines day after day. Why? Because His Word says it so. He is sovereign over every bit of it. Every ounce of chaos Revelation has made clear. The Lord sits enthroned in heaven and He is sovereign over every bit of it. So in a world where things are chaotic and are not as they seem, the Word of God is the faithful Word that guides us and blessed are those who keep it. Blessed are those who are faithful and perseverant and hold fast to what the Lord says in the midst of a world of temptation and deception like we've seen in Revelation. Blessed are those who hold fast, who keep the Word. Exhortation number two is found in eight, verse 8 and 9. And that exhortation is this. Worship God. Worship God. Exhortation one, keep the Word. Exhortation two, worship God. Verse 8 and 9, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel. You showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the word of this book. Worship God. Now, this is the second time this has happened. John has seen a revelation before, right? And he was so moved to it back in Revelation 19 that he fell down to worship the angel. Here, he has just seen the picture of the new heavens and new earth. And once again, it's so glorious, he fell down to worship the angel again. We'll talk about what that means, but both times the angel says the same exact thing. Don't do that. Worship God. Worship God and Him alone. Now, here, we get a second authentication, right? So we've had the Lord declare His word is true, but now we get the apostolic witness of John himself. And John declares with apostolic authority that I have beheld these things. I have seen these things. I am the one who watched them and witnessed them. And I'm not trying to manufacture anything. So much so that I'm, really, I'm literally writing in my own mistakes. I'm writing in my own errors in worshiping an angel. If I'm trying to manufacture it, I'm not going to put my own shortcomings in it. I'm not going to put how quick I was to be an, become an idolater. That's one of the one things about Scripture. If you're trying to, to, doctor, to doctor it up, and you're, they did a really bad job of not covering out, editing out their own blemishes. But they weren't trying to do that. They were just simply revealing it as it was brought forth to them in spite of their own hiccups and mistakes and sins and failures. Why? Because there's only one hero of Scripture and it's Christ but John is an apostolic witness to these things. 1 John 1, 1-2 That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John is declaring his apostolic witness here. And he's talking about now what the primary focus of Revelation is meant to do for us. It is meant to turn our eyes 
away from everything else and on Christ alone, on God alone. The glory of this vision should produce worship in your heart. When we've been going through Revelation 21 and 22 especially, your heart should have been moved at the beauty of the vision of what God's glorified people on a glorified earth will be like. It should move you to worship. When you look at God's perfect retributive justice, His recompense, the way in which He will be perfect in destroying evil, you should be moved to worship. This book should drive you to praise, drive you to worship. The problem is though, don't worship the wrong thing. And there's a lot of people who read Revelation and end up worshiping the wrong things. They end up worshiping physical realities. They end up worshiping a strip of land in the Middle East. They end up worshiping a false physical temple. They end up worshiping the news and TBN because there's seven red heifers getting sent to Israel. They end up worshiping the the news headlines and, and going, oh, this is it. This is the moment. They end up worshiping pastors who can unlock revelation in a way they've never seen before. This book should produce worship. But as John is warning us here, and the angel declares, don't worship the wrong thing. Don't let this book move your heart towards the wrong object. Worship God. Don't get caught up in letting your heart go to, was this the mark of the beast? Is, is, is this the, the sign of the times? Is this the Antichrist? Is this that? The moment you've done that, you've given your heart over to the wrong things. The object of your worship should be God. And Him alone. And everything in this book of what it does for us is it should just merely create in us a praise and an excitement knowing my God has got everything in control. I don't need to fear tomorrow's headlines. I don't need to worry at all what happens tomorrow because I know the one who controls tomorrow. So I'm going to worship Him. I know how the end turns out. Therefore, what am I afraid of? I'm not going to let the world get in the way of my worship. That's the call. Don't set your heart on wrong things. Worship God and Him alone. Colossians 2.18 Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That's literally, we just got to go out of the world. We got to just go out and live monastic lifestyles, the Benedict option, right? We just got to get out, create our own little communes and get away from the world. So let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. That's a whole lot of people that end up coming out of Revelation. We, we just need to get out of the world because it's all going bad. It's going to hell fast. Um, the tribulation is going to come. Are we going to be left behind? Uh, you know, we need to be looking at these signs and these visions. That's what our heart needs to be set on. Where are we at in the book? Listening to men whose board looks like detectives in a room where they can't figure out anything. Strings and balls of yarn attached to pictures and saying, this is where this goes and this is how this looks. Charts and funny graphs 
that make them sound puffed up and smart, but just show you they don't know how to properly divide the word of the, the, the Lord. That they've totally cut out Jesus of his own revelation. Beware of that. Worship God. Let this book not drive you to the fear of men, but to the worship of God. That's what Revelation is called to do. That's why the Lord gave it. So that no matter what happens tomorrow, you'll say, my worship is not, is, remains unfazed by the ways of the world. Because I know who's in control. I know the sovereign triumph of the Lamb. And therefore, I'm going to worship no matter what they come and do to me in the meantime. Worship God. Exhortation three. Be holy. Be holy. Verse 10 through 13. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil. Filthy still be filthy. The righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This whole concept here is about being holy. But he says some interesting things in here. First, notice what he says here in verse 10. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy. Notice that's singular. That's why we call it revelation, not revelations. Singular prophecy. The glorious reality. And those recapitulating visions, they're not telling multiple sets of prophecies. It's the same prophecy being retold multiple times from a different vantage point. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Notice the imminency. It's near. It's about to happen. Where does he get this sealing language, though, when it comes to prophecy? Well, he gets it straight out of Daniel. When Daniel received his prophecy, we are told this, Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And so Daniel is told to seal up his revelation, to close it off, to seal it up, because the time is still a far ways off. The end times that the book of Daniel is declaring in the revelation of this Son of Man who will come and establish a kingdom which will, bring, which will destroy all the other kingdoms of the earth is now, it's not yet coming, Daniel, so seal it off. That's still future. But with John, don't seal it off. Why? Because this is that time. What Daniel had sealed, has now been unlocked in Revelation through the key, which is Jesus Christ. Christ is the... He is the interpretive key that unlocks all of Scripture. So Revelation is merely the unlocking of what Daniel had sealed through the clear revelation of the risen, reigning, ruling King Jesus. And the reason why there's no need to seal it up is because unlike Daniel, these truths that have been given to John are not a long way off like we tend to think they are. He's telling John, they're they're happening right now. The time's near. 
Right now, these realities were happening. Those seven churches are not reflective of seven different church ages. No, they were right then and there. They were going through real persecution, real suffering. All of this was happening right then and there. It wasn't just future. Right now, and brothers and sisters, we still are going right through these things. And because of the imminency of these realities and the truth of the revelation, then we need to heed the words of what Jesus gave at His Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, 42-44. Therefore, stay awake. Stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the reality, the reality of the imminency of the Lord's coming. You don't know when He's going to come. It could be in five minutes. It could be in another five millennia. I don't think it's going to be that long, but it could be. You don't know. So how should God's people live in light of the imminent return of Jesus? The answer is be holy. Be holy. Be set apart. That's what holiness means. It means to reflect the God who redeemed you. To reflect the Christ who saved you. To surrender to the Spirit who indwells you. Be holy. But he does, he says something here that's really unique. Notice what he says. He basically says, let sinners be sinners. I want you to hear this. Verse 11, let the evildoer still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy. Now, we haven't heard many words like that. But we need to understand the severity of what this text is talking about here. This is talking about the reality of those who are given over. If you desire evil, go do it. If you desire your filth and your depravity, go live in it. The Lord will give you what you want. You want to go be evil? Go be evil. You want to wallow in filth? Go do it. But He's coming. This is judgment language here. This is being given over. We see this in the the Old Testament prophets as well. Ezekiel 3.27 But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth. This is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, "He He who will hear, let him hear. And he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. For those who don't want to hear the words of this book, go be evil. Those who don't want to obey the words of Christ, go go wallow in your filth. But He's coming. Go after the, the depravity of your heart if you want. Go and applaud it in the world. He's coming. Daniel chapter 12, verse 10. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. In other words, right? When we witness to people in light of the imminent return of Christ, 
We need to make it very clear because we're going to see in a moment one of the most evangelistic passages in Scripture. But prior to that, listen. If you want to continue in this destructive lifestyle, go for it. But He's coming. You want to continue living in your addiction and suffering? You want to continue filling your thirst with all of the vain and empty substances of this world? Go have at it. But He's coming. You want your sin? Go have it. He'll let you have it. But the end is terrible for you. This is judgment language. And in many ways, I think the Lord is just trying to absolutely, with the fact of the imminency of His return, I think He's trying to make it very clear. There will come a very clear time in your life and within human history that repentance will be no more. There will come a day like Esau and you won't find repentance. You'll just find yourself outside in judgment. So let the sinner be, do the sin. Let the evildoer do evil. Let the, the filthy do filthy. If they want to be given over to that, go for it. Have at it. Eat it up. Drink it up. But he's coming. That should not be the heart of those who desperately long for Christ. We are called to be holy. And the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. We are called to live in light of our holiness. And I love this because this so much reflects the writing of the psalmist. Who, when, when looking at the, the way in which the wicked, way, the wicked of the world are, are you know, bloating in their riches and lavishing in their, their large mansions and homes and have all of these things, the writer of the psalmist says, don't covet the wicked. Let them go after their wicked ways. Don't be polluted by that. You stay holy. You don't look to the things of the world. You know what your reward is. And it's not here. My friends, those who want to continue to do evil and live in their sin and reject Christ, this is the closest to heaven they'll ever know. But those who are holy and walk in His righteousness, this is the closest to hell we'll ever know. And if this is the closest to heaven you'll ever get, God help you. We are called to be holy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul's closing letter. His, his going out letter. Chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. I think the reality of this, let the evil continue to do evil and let the righteous be righteous, let the holy be holy. I think what that's drawing to our own attention is the fact that as the age progresses towards its climax, the separation between evil and righteous will become more and more clear. More and more distinct as we draw to the end of the ages. 
which is something that my, my prayer is, is something that's maybe actually happening in America right now. That there are so many people who would used to be on that kind of left side or, or the secular side or even agnostic or atheist side who there is a, a, a stirring in their soul in light of the folly of where we're headed and going, this is kind of getting over, this is getting crazy. This is just insane. God's using that. He's using that to stir in the hearts the necessity that they need something greater. They need Christ. But when, while that happens, that chasm between holiness and sinfulness gets further and further widened. But that's a good thing for God's people. It's a good thing for God's people when the lines can't be blurred anymore. And for far too long, the lines have been blurred and it has greatly served to the deficit of the churches. Because no one calls anybody to be holy anymore. But the scripture does. You're called to be holy. You're set apart. You don't get to live like the world. You were bought with a price. You are not your own, the scripture says. Be holy. Let the evil be evil. Why? Because the king is coming in judgment. I'm coming to bring my recompense. That's repayment. I'm coming to repay all that evil. So let them do evil. And you make that clear when you're witnessing. Listen, the only hope for you is Jesus Christ. But if you will not have him, go. Go and drink it in. Go and live it up. But he's coming. He's coming. And you will have no excuse on that day of judgment unless you surrender now in faith. That needs to be a real part of your kind of preaching because tomorrow isn't promised. And you don't know whether it's the coming of the Lord or the fact that that person that you're witnessing to is going to get creamed in a car on the way home and never hears it again. There needs to be an urgency in our message. If you want to be evil, go do it. But he's coming. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. We will be holy. Why? Because he's coming. He's coming. And will he find his church awake and ready, vigilant and faithful? Exhortation four, be washed, be washed. This is the basis of where we receive our righteousness. Verse 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So this is the call. Be washed. Be covered by the righteousness of Christ. What is our robes? What must they be washed in? We've already, we've already seen this picture before in Revelation 7.14. I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These, and this is talking about the saints, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Notice that's already happening. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So what do you need to be washed in? You need to be washed by the blood of the Lamb. That's your only hope of standing in glory, of partaking of the tree of life, is to be washed 
in the blood of the Lamb. Where crimson makes us white. Where His blood makes us pure. What is it that you're trying to wear? If it's your own self-righteousness, that's, that's, that's your burial garments. You need to cast those off just like Lazarus needed to. What are you trying to wear? There's a parable of a wedding feast. And the Lord comes and He finds many of those who have been invited and brought and He sees that they're not dressed for the wedding. And He kicks them out. You're not dressed for this. And my friends, there is only one dress code in glory. The the robes of Christ's righteousness. That's it. So be washed. Be washed by the blood of the Lamb which comes only by grace through faith in Him. Don't try to address yourself Don't put on the costumes of this world that they might lull you to sleep and thinking you're ready and prepared. You must be washed. You must be washed by the blood of the Lamb. And you are to enter the city gates of the new Jerusalem, the people of God, that righteous city. Psalm 118.20, This is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous shall enter through it. Not your righteousness, His You must be washed by His blood and dressed in His righteousness. Those who are not washed, though, we are told, that is the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers and idolaters, all of them will be cut off from the heavenly city. Dogs, right? This is not the animal here. This is a term of derision. A term of those outside the covenant. It was often what Jews referred to the Gentiles as. They are dogs. Remember when the Lord is talking to the Syrophoenician woman. Right? And He talks about this is for the children first. He's referring to the Jews. Right? She says, well, even the dogs get crumbs from the table. Right? She, she's calling herself what the Jews would often call her. She's, she's humbling herself and saying, listen, I, I am a dog. I, I'm on the outside. And the Lord saves her, right, because of her humble, broken heart. But this term of dogs is simply, you're outside the covenant. You are cut off. It is a term of derision, right? These are those who are sorcerers, right? The, 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 the term that is often used for sorcerer and witchcraft is actually pharmakia. Right? It's, it's where we get pharmacy from. It's, it's drugs. It's anything that would bring a deception or an allurement upon one's soul, whether that is physical substances or spiritual, that would seek to numb and and to draw one's mind away from Christ, to draw them away from sobriety. These are those who are given over to deception, to deceiving, those who are being deceived and deceiving. The sexually immoral. Anything outside of Genesis 2.24 is sexually illicit and immoral. You can start trying to name little groups if you want, but if it's outside Genesis 2.24, it's illicit and immoral, period. Murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehoods. 
my friends, I want you to know something today. There isn't a single one of us in this room who wouldn't fall in that one of those categories in some form or fashion. And you know the only reason you're going to be in the gates? Because you're washed. You've been washed. That's the difference. You've been washed and cleansed and sanctified, Paul says to the church at Corinth. Such were some of you. But you've been washed. What? The blood of the Lamb. So this is not to just say this is some works righteousness. No, the only righteousness is His. We must be washed. Galatians 5, 19-21 Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I promise you, you're somewhere in that list. And apart from Christ, you're outside the kingdom. But if you're in Christ, you are washed. So the fourth exhortation is to be washed. And how are we washed? Well, exhortation five makes clear the final exhortation of Revelation. The final call of the book is come to Jesus. Think about that. The final exhortation of the New Testament is come to Jesus. Look at what it says. Verse 16 and 17. I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Jesus declares his identity and then immediately the Spirit and the Bride, that's His church, declare, come. Why? Because who's at work in the Bride? The Spirit. So the Spirit's testimony to come is the Bride's testimony, come. And then all those who hear, come. It is a constant testimony to bid all the world to come to Christ. And everyone who hears and comes now joins into the choir. You all need to come. Jesus declares why we should come. First, He establishes Himself as the eternal Davidic King. But notice what He says. I am the root and descendant of David. The root of David and the descendant of David. Roots are the one that do the production. Roots are the origin. In other words, I'm the origin of David and the son of David. David said to my Lord, Psalm 110. Jesus is declaring himself not only as the very origin of the Davidic covenant, but the outcome of the Davidic covenant. Revelation 5, 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah foretold would happen. 
Notice what's funny about Isaiah 11 is Isaiah 11, 1 says that there will be a shoot that blossoms off of Jesse. But then in Isaiah eleven ten it says in that day, the root of Jesse. See the same thing, a shoot and a root. He's the origin and the offspring. This is remarkable. It shows both the eternality and the humanity of Christ. In this singular statement, in that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and the resting place shall be glorious. He's not just a shoot, but the root. Not just the origin, but the offspring. He is the sum and substance of the Davidic covenant of the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will reign over a kingdom forever and always, never to be removed from the throne. That's why you should come. Matthew, this is what Matthew's gospel is all about. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, literally, here is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the Davidic king. He is the promised offspring of Abraham. In other words, he is David's son and David's Lord. Remarkable. He is not only the eternal Davidic king, he is the bright morning star. This promised morning star of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter, or excuse me, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. That's Jesus. He is the star rising out of Jacob. The scepter rising out of Israel that will crush that forehead of Moab. And Moab is seen as a place of iniquity. It is a, it is a type of Satan. And he crushes its head. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 3, And the nation shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. My friends, it is no Coincidence, why Christ's birth was marked by a star. Because the morning star had come. And the only way to know salvation is to follow that star. Be like the wise men and follow the star. That's the point. And come and bring all your gifts because He's the reward. He's the reward. He is our bright morning star. He is also the source of all life. Notice the one who is thirsty come. Remember I talked about it this morning. Desperation is what produces desire. And a lot of times the world's thirsty. It's desperately thirsty. But it's going after the wrong whales. The wrong sources of water. And it keeps wondering why every time it takes a sip... He only gets more thirsty. It's never satisfied. It's never quenched. It's because your taste buds were created to only be satisfied in Him. And you will never be satisfied until you get a taste of Him. You will left wandering around this world, constantly going from water source to water source, just to be left emptier and emptier. And your soul more toxic and toxic until you get one taste of the purified water of Christ. 
He is the source of all life. John 7, 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. This is the call to come. Come all you who are thirsty. Come all you who are weary and burdened. And He will give you life and peace and rest. You won't find it anywhere else. This world is full of mirages which will keep you wandering further and further out in the desert to go and die. Christ alone is the source of life. So come and drink. And lastly, come and drink because He is the free gift of God. Notice what He says here at the end. The one who desires, take the water of life without price. You can't buy this. This is free. It is freely held out to all. And there is no way this water ever runs out. It is a constant bubbling spring. Never does it lessen. It always runneth over. So there's no reason you should not come and drink. Let all the world come and drink. This spring will not diminish in the least. And it's free. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. This is Isaiah 55 to a T. Isaiah 55, 1. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Everything you need is in Christ. And He says it's free. Just come receive it. Come receive it. It's free for you. You can't earn this. The price is beyond anything you could ever pay. But He paid the price for you. So that you could just come and drink. Come and eat. And be filled forever. It is free for you. It is free for you. He is the free gift of God. So come. Let all of God's people say come. Let everyone who hears of Christ say come. The final exhortation of the book is not only an invitation, but it is a commission. Go and tell the world come to Jesus. He is coming. So you go and say come. Come before He comes. Because when He comes, there won't be another opportunity. It's free for you. And isn't it amazing that this is what sin does for us? Sin drives us to greater debt while Christ gives us greater freedom. And yet we go after the debt. We're like, we're like Israel, who while being fed manna, which was free, quail, which were free, every morning, manna from the sky. There it is. It's free. Eat of it. But instead of looking at this amazing provision and desiring it and longing for it and being thankful for it, said, we really missed the cucumbers and the fish and the leeks. And all those other things in Egypt. In other words, we loved our slavery. We'll take the delights of slavery more than we will the precious gift of God in freedom. That's what sin will do to you. So don't be lowered into the debts of sin. 
live in the free gift you have in Christ. And daily wake up and rejoice over the manna. Rejoice over the water which flows from the rock of ages that has been given to you for free. But it wasn't free to Him. It cost Him everything. So won't you drink? Won't you come? That is the call, the final exhortation of the New Testament. Come to Jesus. But it ends with a warning. Final warning, verse 18 and 19. We'll close here. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. The Lord is making very clear, He will guard His Word from all lies. His Word is perfect as it is, and any addition to it or taking away from it will bring curse upon you. All of those curses of judgment that will come upon the wicked in the, in, in, now in this life and in the day of judgment will be added to you if you seek to add to His Word. Don't add to this revelation. Don't add to what I have given to you, what I have inspired for my people. And what's amazing about this is there's one really important place that we find this same language of don't add or don't take away. And it's in the Torah. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. When Moses closed the law through the inspiration of the Spirit, the Spirit sealed the law of God, the Mosaic law, with blessings and curses. If you obey it, you're blessed. But if you break this, plagues will be added to you. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 6, Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you, and you be found a liar. It's the greatest fear in preaching. Don't add to anything where this word speaks. And we need to heed the words of Calvin who said, where God's word ceases to speak, so should we. Where His word ceases to speak, so should you. So if it's not, the word's not clear on a specific thing, don't you dare be dogmatic lest you be found a liar. A lot of people have added to Revelation terribly. Lord, help them for that and using it as a way to puff up pride and knowledge. Galatians 1, 6 and 7, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The very first sin began with the temptation, did God really say? Did God really say? And what does... Eve do. She adds to God's word. Well, he said, don't touch it. He never said, don't touch it. Adam told you, don't touch it. Because he's trying to add a little extra, keep you away. Don't add to God's word. There's nothing to add. To try to add is to elevate yourself to divine authority. Don't add. It is better to say, I don't understand, 
than to add an understanding that isn't biblical. It is better just to say, I'm not sure, than to start adding your opinion and calling it dogma. Because God will add the plagues to you. Deuteronomy 29, 19 and 20. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke will smoke against that man and the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. If there's any other thing that I want this warning to do for you today, let it be this. See how serious Jesus takes his word. See how serious he takes the authority and the inaccuracy or and the accuracy and the inerrancy of his word. You go ahead and add to it and watch what happens to you. You have no part in me if my word is not enough for you. That's the whole point of this. Don't take away from his word. And how do we do that? It isn't just saying, well, let's just. Let's just take out chapter 21 because I didn't like that. Or let's get rid of those seven bowl judgments because those seem scary and weird. That's not what it necessarily even means by take away. Taking away is not just subtracting from Scripture. It's twisting Scripture. It's manipulating it. Paul, uh, Peter talks about how many people twisted Paul's teachings. 2 Peter 3.16 As Paul does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. If Peter says that, then you're in good company, right? There are some things that sometimes Paul preaches like, man, that's, that's deep theology. They're hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. As they do the other scriptures. If Revelation, my, my prayer for you as we've gone through Revelation, is that if you see anything beyond the glorious gospel in Revelation of Christ's victory and vindication and perfect return and triumph over all evil, if you've seen anything beyond that, then you've, I failed you. All that other stuff, all that other fluff that sells books, it's not here. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. And that is what we have allowed God's Word to do. And when we let Scripture interpret Scripture, the clear picture of Revelation is absolutely abundant. It's clear. Take heart, my people. Though the world would seek to hurt you and persecute you, and though they may even kill you in this life, your victory is certain in Christ. His triumph is guaranteed. And if you're in Christ, there is no loss for you. Only gain. Only gain. That's the message of Revelation. And there is no need to add to that. There is no need to twist it. There are many secondary and tertiary matters in this book that we have talked about and are easy to be given over 
to very aspects of interpretation and can still be faithful in doing so. But don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't lose Christ in His own revelation. Don't add or take away to God's Word. And the reason why these, these realities that we see, just like we saw in Deuteronomy, why is the Lord ratifying the end of His new covenant canon with blessings and cursings, with don't add to this, it's because just as the law of Moses was established this way, He is now closing the law of Christ. And my friends, what is the law of Christ? Well, here it is. The law of Christ is this. Obey His Word. The law of Christ is this. Worship God. The law of Christ is this. Be holy. The law of Christ is this. Be washed. The law of Christ is this. Come to Jesus. And all those other things will be added to you. No wonder he would say, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. This is the law of Christ. How can we not follow? How can we not obey? But if we don't, let us be warned. He is coming. He is coming. And His judgment will be perfect for those who failed to heed the law of Christ. Which begins and ends with this central point. Come to Christ. And be washed and cleansed and made holy that you may enter into the gates forever. This is revelation ratified. Next week we close it all together with what will be the central way in which we are preserved in the midst of it all. And the answer we will find is grace. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you. We, we pray, God, that you would help us be obedient to these glorious exhortations. Lord, that we would be those who, are, who keep your word who have it fall upon our hearts. And day and night, we seek to go after it like a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That we look to its righteous precepts and constantly speak them over our hearts and pray them over our lives and, and feel them in our homes, God. That, that Your Word would just be so abundant, day and night, written upon our hearts, spoken as we go, as we come and go, like You, like you talk about in the Shema, Lord. That in our goings and our comings, as we pass by, that, that the Word of God would just permeate through us constantly. Because it is a blessing to heed it and to go after it and to pursue it. Lord, let us be those who worship You alone. We are an idol-making factory. Our heart is constantly pumping up desires to worship other things. Lord, I pray that You will crucify them all, that You will crush it all, and that You will set our eyes upon You and You alone, the triune God of heaven, that our hearts would be set to worship You and nothing else. Lord, we pray that You will set us apart further, that You will immensely fill us with your spirit in a way that gets more of us to be holy and set apart that our lives would truly be the light of the world the salt of the earth that you have called us to be lord i pray that we will be washed by the blood of christ dressed 
in the righteousness of Him and Him alone. That we would be ready and alert for when the wedding day comes. That we will be able to stand in Your courts rejoicing forever because we have been washed in Christ's blood and dressed in His righteousness. Lord, I pray that we will all come to Jesus and go and tell the world, come to Jesus. That that heart of evangelism and, and, and mission would so permeate us to go into the world and say, come, come you who are thirsty, come you who are weary, come, it is free, it is abundant for you, it is ready for you to partake by faith, come, please come to Christ and Him alone and know His salvation forever. God, let that burden be on our hearts and let us come daily to the manna. Let us come daily to the rock and drink of it and never be enticed back to Egypt. Never be enticed back to slavery. But to see all of our satisfaction in You and You alone. Lord, Your Word is perfect. It is true. It is trustworthy. Let it be the lens by which we see And behold all things, so that when the world feeds us lies, we are sanctified by the truth, and your word is truth. We say all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.